Uh, weekend. Variety. Wireless. Straight away, I want to say a huge thank you to a cat by the name of Scott Kelly. His grandfather, James Brown Peterson, was on board the West Virginia when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor on pretty much this moment, 77 years ago, December the 7th, USA time. Uh, he barely ever spoke of it, but one day in 1988, he collected his memories as clear as he could. It's a tough listen, as you can imagine. This is a private recording within the Kelly and Peterson family. He gave that recording to me and said, "Would you like to play it on the radio?" I had to listen to it and got listened to it and got back to him and said, "Would I? Damn what? It's an astounding eyewitness testimony." from someone who was there. And it goes on to the Battle of Midway as well. So hats off to um, you, Scott Kelly, for giving me that recording. And as it is an apt anniversary, straight after the commercial break, that is what we'll be listening to and we'll have a short introduction with Scott Kelly as well. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate, of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, a date which will live in infamy. Curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Listeners, we've got something really special to play you, and that's the eyewitness, I was there testimony of a sailor who was at Pearl Harbour and caught the hell of it. And it's an interesting discovery. Joining me is a descendant of that person, Scott Kelly. What are we going to hear? What have we got? Well, we've got a... Um a recording of my grandfather, James Brown Peterson, of it's his account of being in Pearl Harbour, essentially, mm. and a little bit of the aftermath and what happened after that and what, what he got up to. It comes from a tape that was made when he went back to Jamestown. He's from Jamestown in USA, right by Fargo, for mm -hmm. the movie buffs out there. And he went back there for his high school reunion sometime in the mid to late 80s. We can't okay. quite remember it. Was exactly. he living in New Zealand after Yeah, that, he was he? living in New Zealand, yeah. Okay. So married, married a New Zealander. Married a New Zealander, all of that okay. kind of stuff. He never really talked about the war, as was kind of the way back then, you know, for various reasons. Mm. So we never really heard the account. And then he came back from his high school reunion and he just sort of gave us this tape, gave the family this tape and said, here it is. Wow. And that was really the first time he had, he had told the whole story. You know, as kids, we'd heard little snippets here and there. Mm. You know, what was it like at Pearl Harbor, Popper? Yeah. Um, you'd never really get much out of him, you know. But, yeah. but I think reluctantly he was convinced by the local librarian at Jamestown to, to lay this down. Yeah. And he never really spoke about it since that, you know. 
And when did you first hear the tape? I would have first heard it around that time, mid to late 80s again. The mm. time sort of escapes me. And that was just passed around the family, and it's a dusty old cassette. And I dug it out about 10 years ago when digitising things became easy mm. and did just that. So Because I thought, well, this is just going to get lost and, and you know, um, we're going to need a pencil to fix this kind of thing. <laughs> and I digitised that and, and passed it around the family and there it kind of lay. And I just recently rediscovered it mm. and played it some folk at work and they were just, their mouths were, their jaws were wide open. You know, with some of the account of, of yeah. for example, the Arizona blowing up and the conning tower falling yeah, over, things yeah. that were in our in our mind's eye because that footage is so famous. That yeah, tower absolutely. going over of the ship and mm. that being described from someone in the ship. And and you know, one of the most famous iconic images of Pearl Harbor, you know, with the with the the boat putting out the fire and the, and the the smoke in front. Yeah, that, that's the West Virginia. So we'd always look at that and go, "That's his ship, the that, West Virginia, yeah, the USS West Virginia." And he was on there. He was Good on there. God. He was on there. You know, he um, after Pearl Harbor, you'll hear he went to Midway. After that, he got sent to New Zealand on R and R. So he ended up in Napier, and met my grandmother at a dance. And was that the R or the R? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they they almost I think they. Not not eloped, but you know, got married rather quickly. Nice. Ended up going to San Francisco, and I think the word is he they had their first child over there, and he got offered a job on the cruise liners because that was the industry that was just starting up, and mm. and mainly kind of staffed by ex Navy people. Mm. And he said, no, nope, I want to go back to New Zealand to visit the family, and he did, and never wanted to leave. So right. that's that's kind of how he got here. And his name? James Brown Peterson, who's born on December. 23rd, 1920, and he passed away in um, September 2009. Not that yeah. long ago, Not huh? Not that long ago, yeah. Okay. And his ship was the West Virginia yep. at Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor, that's the one, yeah. And the other people heard, sort of just in the background, they are the people at this high school reunion recording it. That was the local librarian there. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. So she was the one kind of coaxing, coaxing him on a bit. Yeah. And I think you'll probably hear a few pauses and stuff like that because well. he, he tended to go on. Yeah. About things and digress. And I, I bet he did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually don't mind the digressions. No, it's, it's interesting, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. No, not at all. Because um, primarily, he's a good storyteller. Yeah, which was. is He could tell a good yarn, that's key, for sure. Yeah. I think. Thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to play this. Uh, because uh, today is the anniversary of 1941. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was the 7th of December, of course, 1941, the attack on Pearl Harbor, and that did change the world. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate and of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Eyewitness testimony. Hello, I'm, uh, well, officially James Brown Peterson, commonly called Pete Peterson, from Jamestown, North Dakota. And I'm here for the class of 1938 uh, reunion. And I've had the pleasure of visiting Mary Young, 
a uh, well-known local historian who has asked me to record my thoughts about the fact that I was present at the attack on Pearl Harbor on the 7th of December, 1941. So although I'm reluctant to do this, really, I will. It's also a rather auspicious day because here it is the 4th of July in 1988 on a delightful day here in Jamestown. But to get more to the point, I entered the U.S. Navy on the 18th of March, 1939, after graduating high school, and uh, I was favored to join the USS West Virginia uh, at the Bremerton Navy Yard in July of that year. Uh, she was our most illustrious battleship, at least at that time, but I really didn't think so because she looked just like a little tub there lying alongside the wharf, uh, Mary. Uh, however, the longer I stayed on her, the bigger she got. And I was drafted into the navigation division uh, of the West Virginia. And um, as such, we were fairly close to the, uh, to the navigation, of course, and, and to the bridge. Um, we went down the coast to San Francisco. We were on a lot of fleet problems out of there over a period of time. And then we went on what we thought was, uh, I think from memory it was fleet problem 21. And that took us to the Hawaiian Islands. The whole fleet went there, with an odd exception. And we didn't go to Pearl Harbor, first of all. We went to, um, we anchored off the island of Maui on Lahaina Roads. And it was a beautiful uh, uh, anchorage there. We anchored very close to the, um, the shore. And um, when the whole fleet was in, especially of an evening with the water just gently sort of rising and falling and the blinking lights of the um, ships uh, signaling to one another and the bugle call a tap for bringing down the colors, and uh, it was truly a magnificent scene. And uh, we sailed in and out of, of uh, Lahaina Roads for some time. In fact, we crossed the equator on the 12th of July, 1940. The whole fleet did that just as a kind of a thing to give us something to look forward to in the rest of our life. Um, I think it would be about the 31st of August of 1940 that we really felt as if we were going to war. Now that may be an exaggeration, but that sort of was in a lot of our minds. And we were then ordered into Pearl Harbor. And, um, and whenever we went out, we uh, had special watches, and uh, we were docking ship at times. And in fact, um, uh, even quite well before we got into the war, I can recall uh, entertaining, uh, let's see, I think it was the city of Southampton had got banged up at uh, Alex, Alexandria in Egypt. Uh, and they came into Pearl Harbor, and also the uh, British uh, battleship Warspite came in, and, and uh, we entertained the, our fellow quartermasters from that ship. Anyway, to get uh, to Pearl Harbor, um, we'd had Admiral's inspection, uh, which uh, usually took place about once a year, and that was, a, you know, it was an intense uh, inspection. And, um, Is that when the inspection... 
Is that when they inspect the coffee pots and the cooks have to come above deck? And Every conceivable thing. In they, fact, my uh, cleaning station, I used to call it, was a chart house. I was responsible for the charts and some of the navigational instruments, and I also was responsible for all the sh uh, you know, setting all the ship's clocks, and I used to make minor repairs, and usually all you got to do is force them to go ahead a little bit, and they'll go again. Uh, and I would even polish, I'd, on the brass switches, on the bulkheads, or walls as they're called, you'd even take the screws off and uh, polish behind the screws. As a quartermaster, I was a quartermaster third class then, and we stood watches with the officer of the deck. And we were really expecting to go back to um, uh, Bremerton Navy Yard. But oddly enough, the Arizona had, had held us up because she'd had a little more problems at the Navy Yard than was anticipated, and she was late joining the fleet. So we were held up, and we were leaving uh, Pearl Harbor on the 12th of um, December. And um, because cigarettes were so cheap, um, Everybody bought not just cartons of cigarettes, but cases of cigarettes, which were all over the place. Anyway, that's just another diversion. Um, I had the mid-watch on the 7th of December, and that's from 12 midnight until 4 o'clock in the morning. And it wasn't until my young brother Byron had sent me uh, something out of a history book or something fairly recently uh, that I could recall the name of the young officer that I uh, stood that watch with. And it was Ensign Delano. He was a nephew of the president, Franklin no, Delano Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. And he was a most charming young man. Uh, well, anyway, he and I stood the mid-watch. And having had the mid-watch, I, I, I didn't have to get up for any sort of emergency call unless it was real, mm -hmm. uh, the following morning. And our quarters, the quartermaster's quarters, was down in the steering engine room, uh, just immediately below the admiral's and officer's quarters. And that was separated by a huge, thick, armored uh, door. And there was one just above us, too, there, uh, uh, one below us, uh, also. And uh, on the morning of the 7th of December, I don't know what time it was because, you know, I've, oddly enough, you learn a lot about these things from Reader's Digest or something right. because the, somebody writes that person's experience and that person's experience and they put it all together. But this is mine. Yeah. <laughs> and you weren't just coming on watch like a lot of no, the no, no. tell. I'd, I'd had the, tell I'd, I'd already had the midwash and I was down uh -huh. sleeping, right? Uh -huh. And, um, Although previously I'd uh, slept in a hammock hung underneath the rams that uh, steered the ship, I had a bunk, sort of a camp stretcher that you folded up underneath number one steering engine. And whatever time it was, I heard a ta-da, 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 ta-da. Fire and rescue, fire and rescue, fire and rescue. What does that mean? Yeah, well, that means that uh, something's on fire, and it's a drill, I thought, okay. of course. And uh, you'll remember yeah. that I had the midwash, and I didn't yeah, have to right. go to drills. Right, right. And then suddenly there was a ding, 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 general quarters, general quarters, general quarters. Okay. And almost immediately after, there was an almighty whoom, and the, the ship just sort of rose on itself, 
And I said, oh, my God, the Japs have arrived. And I, you did? for some reason, I knew that immediately. But I thought we were firing our 16-inch guns. Because when the 16-inch guns are fired, it's not a loud bang at all. It was a sort of a boom, and the ship would sort of rock. And actually, it was a rather pleasant feeling the way yeah, that the, uh -huh. the ship rocked. So I, of course, got up immediately. And what I didn't know was that that was our first torpedo hit. And it hit us aft. And I got dressed, and of course you were, you know, you, you were so well trained. I even went back to my locker, and by that time there was a bit of water on the deck, and I got my hat. To, but I wouldn't dare go up on deck without a hat, so mm -hmm. I did that. As I was going up the steel ladder, and there were others coming down the steering engine room uh, for their general quarter station. And the water was creeping in there, and I understand they didn't get out because we dogged down that hatch. Dogging down means to fix it down with yeah. some big thing. Yeah. And, um, and they locked in there. Well, we were locked in because we couldn't get up through the air, other one either. Uh -huh. So um, I then made my way, and I chose the wrong side of the ship. I chose the port side, which was the attack side. Uh -huh. And uh, we were commander battleships. As I understand, we were actually prime target because as the planes leveled off over the sub-base West Harbor, mm -hmm. they leveled off right at us, which is the number one ship. Mm -hmm. And the Oklahoma mm -hmm. was just yeah. in front of us, and the California was in front of them. I made my way up the port side, of course that was the attack side, as I said, and I undog a hatch, and I looked through there, and it was all what I thought was smoky, and then we'd take another what were torpedoes and go, whoom, and it would absolutely burst all up the paint off the bulkheads or wall yeah. and the paint just flew and hit you in the face because there was quite a few layers of paint on the bulkhead mm -hmm. and so i got through i suppose about two or three compartments and i realized i was never going to make it so i went all the way back and i got back to the point where i'd arrived mm -hmm. and um, there were about three or four others there somebody took a dog wrench that's a wrench or piece of brass yeah, pipe yeah, really, yeah. that you use to force down these dogs yeah and banged on his armored hatch they and somebody was there to open it up oh, and they exactly. did so that put us up into the officers quarters but i had to go to my battle station which was on the captain's periscope way the devil up in the mm -hmm. in the foremast in mm -hmm. the conning tower and that was a long way up so i well, went when a ship is being attacked uh, do, do you not have to go there, for God's sake? Oh, well, you've got to get to your battle station, however. And I mean, that's... that's. What if it's impossible? Whatever happens, you have to go to your battle station. That, you have to kill yourself getting there. Well, that's part of it, isn't it? That's part of your training. Mm -hmm. Everybody depends on one another. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of talk about, uh, you know, some people resented the fact, you know, maybe the, I resented the fact I had to take those screws off and mm -hmm. polish behind mm -hmm. that in the brass. Mm -hmm. That's important because you learn to do your job perfectly, mm -hmm. not just almost perfect, yeah, uh -huh. because everybody depended upon somebody else to do their job properly. Mm -hmm. And who's going to do the job up in the conning tower if I don't make it there? Or whoever it is that's got to okay. get to the battle station. Mm -hmm. So it's necessary to get to your battle station no matter what. I suppose if you killed yourself doing it, well, then you know, other people uh, got killed at it. And I, I dashed through the officers' quarters, and I got to the entrance of the quarter deck. We were still taking torpedoes. How many did you have in all? Do you know? 
Well, I'll just get to that. Okay. It's just right. uh, part of a fairly long story. <laughs> I'll keep you waiting, Mary. Okay. <laughs> and I had to get out on the quarter deck to get up to the boat deck, to get up the foremast, to get to the conning tower. Well, the fellows are running to their battle station in the turrets, and as I looked out, we took a, what we thought were 11, I think the Japanese were using 11-inch shells as armor-piercing shells, as bombs. And one of them went through one of the, the scouting aircraft on number three turret and incinerated that turret. Well, you can imagine, I still have to go out there. And so I took several deep breaths, and I dashed out of the quarter deck and up the ladder and scampered up and was running along the boat deck. And all of a sudden, we took another torpedo, and a wall of water came across and grabbed me and pulled me down, and I was racing towards the port side of the ship, and I could, I could, I could see it now. The steel started jagged up, and the smoke yeah, wasn't yeah. fire yet, but it was smoke, and I was sliding down in this water, and I managed to hook my leg around a stanchion, just as, as where I was, some of the motorboats had been crashed to the deck. Oh. So I got up and got up and up to the, my, my battle station in the conning tower. Mm -hmm. And I immediately put on my earphones and checked with control, because down in control was another very close friend of mine from Indiana, Benjamin Leo Cherry. And Benjamin Cherry and I were very close friends. I checked my phones. I couldn't get Benjamin because everything was out. And I looked through the slots of the uh, conning tower just as the Oklahoma was rolling over. And she rolled over slowly, and you could see men jumping all the way from the, the foretops. And, you know, mm -hmm. some, most made the water, but an occasional one didn't really and hit the deck. It seems odd, but it was funny. And that's not really the word. There's a word mm -hmm. for something that looks funny when in fact it's not. But when that ship rolled over, almost immediately, there were people walking up the bottom of that yeah. ship. <laughs> and it did seem funny at the time. We have to take a short commercial break. This eyewitness testimony of Pearl Harbor will continue after that. Life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. All right, we're back to the recorded memories. Only done once of this man who was aboard the West uh, Virginia at Pearl Harbor, 1941, when the Japanese attacked James Brown Peterson. Well, in the conning tower, uh, I was on the, the captain's periscope. I used to take bearings for ship station and such like, and identify aircraft and other ships. And then also I was battle helmsman. Uh, that was between myself and chief quartermaster. Also in the conning tower was the captain. We had our most delightful captain, Captain Merson S. Benyon. I think he was Mormon. He was certainly from Salt Lake City. And our previous captain was a real modern ep, but uh, we had the absolute opposite of Mervyn S. Benyon. Uh, he was really beloved by the crew. There was uh, uh, Mervyn S. Benyon, then there was a navigator, there was an assistant navigator, there was uh, an engineering officer, a gunnery officer, and an officer of the deck. 
and the chief quartermaster and myself. And I'm not quite sure whether we also had a junior officer to watch because later on comes into the story Lieutenant J.G. Snowshoes White. And we call him Snowshoes White. He was a, he was a, <laughs> he was a, um, a naval reserve officer. And naval reserve officers were kind of second class at that time because uh, if you were from uh, Annapolis, you were something. And the naval reserve officers were often rather derogatorily uh, referred to as a gentleman or what. But they were very nice guys, and um, they did a lot. But anyway, there wasn't anything we could do. And so the navigator walked out, and um, the captain walked out, and, and I walked out of the conning tower. We were asked to try to, to smash the glass on the flag bridge, because it was obviously a danger, but you couldn't. It was on the glass. We think it was a fragment of the turret of the Tennessee, which was in board of us. But the captain had taken a hit, and he was standing there, having been hit with his, well, his entrails on his fingers, really. Mm -hmm. And he collapsed, and um, Snowshoes White really took charge, in a way, and he said, morphine. And in the excitement with that dog red, we smashed open a, a, a first aid locker which turned out to be quite unnecessary because there is a little latch. And I can still see those little vials of morphine that were given to Captain Menion. Uh, uh, and, and he was taken uh, behind the conning tower and he died. And, and before he died, he said, well, well, looks as if we have to give her up because we were listing over uh -huh. what we'd got over. I don't know. If you read digest, it'd probably tell you. But to mm -hmm. me, it seemed like about uh, maybe 15 degrees. And then she'd settled on a bottom. Mm -hmm. It settled down to about the quarter deck. Mm -hmm. I think that the quarter deck was a wash. We then had to go, well, get off the ship somehow. Mm -hmm. So Benjamin, Leo, Cherry, and I, and he'd come up from this enormous, big, armored passageway. And I was so glad to see him. He came up from below, and he was still, he had oil on him then. He came up with uh, the coxswain, who was a huge guy who just barely made it through that thing. Anyway, Benjamin Cherry and I were making our way down to the uh, to the forecastle to mm -hmm. abandon the ship. And as we came down, we're just about to put our foot on the boat deck, under which was the uh, galley, and there was an almighty whoom and chicken feathers threw all over the place. And Benny Cherry says, Jesus Christ, they got the turkeys. <laughs> and why they would say that, I don't know. You know, yeah. in excitement, you say anything. Yeah, but why the turkeys? <laughs> well, why the turkeys, yeah. for God's sake? They were so, down below. Well, it. Sunday dinner, but Sunday you didn't dinner have turkeys. Sunday dinner and You know, it's funny now, and it was funny well, then, in a way. <laughs> but... Yeah. What it was, uh, and we went back on board the ship. There was there was there was this Benjamin Leo Cherry uh -huh. I talk about, and John Wilson O'Neill, okay. and, and myself, we're a close friend, and we were on board the ship, uh, more or less as they were bringing her up again too, mm -hmm. and we uh, discovered that what had happened is one of those uh, eleven-inch armor-piercing shells had gone through the life jacket lockers, which was on the after side of the foremast, and of course it burst all those life jackets and there was K-Pox well, flying all over the place. 
we get to the to the forecastle, but there were some tragic things. Uh, I can remember uh, looking underneath number one turret and cursing us for leaving the ship, and there wasn't anything we could do. Was a chief boatswain's mate holding what was left of his son? Uh -huh. who, who, holding what was left of his son oh. uh, because he was uh, they were under sheltering I suppose uh -huh. underneath number one uh -huh. turret and the big armored uh, ventilator had fallen on his son oh. and he was holding him in his arm crying and, and of course he was he okay. was absolutely distraught but uh, you know again drill you know, remember I went back and got my hat. Mm -hmm. wow. Yeah, he went back and... Well, I took my shoes off. Oh. And I neatly placed them alongside the rail on the forecastle, and we jumped off. It was a long way down. Oh. And we started making our way you to... You could swim because you swam. Oh, yes, yeah. It wasn't that far anyway, because we were tied up alongside the keys. Because yeah. we were... There was ourself outboard alongside the keys. And inboard of us was the Tennessee. And after that was the Arizona, and the Nevada was there uh, behind the, the Arizona, I think. It might have been vice versa. And there was a repair ship, Regal was alongside of one of them also. And forward of us was the Oklahoma outboard, which had rolled over, I told you about. And inboard of that was the... Um, I think the Colorado, but it could have been the Maryland. And then forward of that, on its own, was the California. Mm -hmm. And just talking about the uh, battleships now. Uh, and the Pennsylvania was over in the sort of repair mm -hmm. dock part mm -hmm. of it. We diverted a little bit here, so I'm, we got to right. catch our memory up, but we will. I think I'm about halfway to the water now. Am yeah. I, Mary? Right. In the water we go, and we've got about uh, probably 100 yards to go to Fort Island. And we were, say, halfway looking aft, had got beyond the Tennessee, and we're looking aft and resting when the Arizona blew up. And she blew up with an almighty roar. And uh, again, Benny, who, he must have been blasphemous because he said, Jesus, it's going to hit us. And uh, because the, the whole ship seemed to uh -huh. jump it out did. of the water and the foremast bent. You'll see uh -huh. photographs yeah, of the Arizona. And the, the foremast is bent Broke forward. Broke the keel. Well, hmm? Broke the keel. Broke the keel. And yeah. the foremast sort of jumped out of the water. That's the only thing I can remember. It was a foremast jumping yeah. out of the water. Uh -huh. And it seemed to fall right at us. Uh -huh. But of course it didn't. It was some distance away. How high would that be? How tall? Oh, I suppose it'd be about um, about 119 feet. I think yeah. it would be the top mm -hmm. if I remember my navigation correctly. Mm -hmm. For, mm -hmm. But it didn't hit us. But there was a lot of oil and it did catch fire. But motor launches pushed the the fire and the oil back away from us mm -hmm. as much as possible. But when the Arizona blew up also, there was this almighty roar of smoke and fire and, and what we thought were people really sort of flying in the air. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a grotesque thing to say, really. Well, it's true. Uh, but still, that's the way you see it, don't mm -hmm. you? 
And maybe that's the way you think you see it. That's yeah, another that's the way point. It was too. <laughs> sure. I tell you about my friend that that was blowing off the Arizona and didn't know how he got on Port Adams. Sure. Well, he might have been the guy that was just swinging yeah. through the air for all I know. <laughs> <laughs> Not that it's humorous at no, all. No, it isn't. Uh, but, mm -hmm. but we we right. finally got to Ford Island, which was coral. And of course, our shoes were off and just spiced our feet, and that fuel oil got in, and, and I suppose it did hurt, but we were either too frightened or too shocked to even notice mm -hmm. it. We climbed up the crawl, and there, alongside a, a palm tree, was a Japanese aviator. <coughs> Dead, obviously. I suppose he, in one of the attacks, he got dumped out. I don't know, but he was there in his white helmet and goggles and his scarf. Which I seem to recall had those Japanese emblems on them. Mm -hmm. Fellows were passing them by and kicking them and calling them all the names under the mm -hmm. sun. It's just the, sort of the excitement of the moment. Mm -hmm. But we were directed to uh, the command headquarters of Admiral PL Bellinger, or Vice Admiral, uh, to the bomb shelter where the wives and the children, I think they'd be of aviators at Fort Island, were truly magnificent because we. We were frightened, <laughs> some maybe not, and full of, not full of fuel oil, but certainly covered in fuel oil, and some mighty badly shocked, and they cleaned us up with kerosene, and we even got a bit of brandy. And Admiral Bellinger opened up his locker, and I can remember a little, there's a little seaman from the 3rd Division, and I, I said this to Ernie Holmuth the other, they uh, call him Red Holmuth here mm -hmm, at yeah. the reunion yesterday. I said, gosh, you remind me of the guy. And then I told him that little story. Huh? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and he was sporting Admiral um, Bellinger's swallowtail coat and Admiral's <laughs> all around the sort of He was that sort of guy, right? And I ended up with Admiral Bellinger's flight jacket. And, of course, I couldn't wear it, but I did remove the, uh, the little um, uh, name tag in leather. And somewhere in my packs I've got that, but it's possibly lost. And just to go back a little bit, when I think of the things that I might still have, and I still have this thing somewhere, I had $57.42 in my locker, saving it up to go to, um, uh, to Bremerton Navy Yard. And a friend of mine was a diver. And when, well, when things settled down, and they were salvaging the ship, he went to my locker and he got that money. And I still got one of those dollar bills somewhere. Oh, yeah, it was all sort of, it was, it was um, deteriorated with salt water and uh -huh. whatnot, but I still got that dollar yeah. bill somewhere. Uh -huh. anyway. And the money was good. I mean, was Well, I, I, um, I did, I handed in all but the one dollar. I thought, well, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll mm -hmm. hang on to that. And while I'm on that, uh, we also put in for a new kit because we lost everything mm -hmm. and I put in for all the clothes that I had lost plus a Waterman pen and pencil set that someone had given me for my graduation in 1938 and I think I put a value of nine dollars and thirty-nine cents on that and 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 that had been crossed off everything was crossed off and I received the princely sum of $110.10. That was the value of a kit, and that was all. Mm -hmm. So that's what I got. Mm -hmm. And I still got that certificate somewhere. Mm -hmm. yeah. Did you see any of the people being pulled out of the water inside yourself? My husband mm -hmm. tells that great big men 
got out of through the porthole that you'd never think that oh, yeah. 18 inch yeah, porthole. No, no, I didn't see that. Uh, no. no. Um, no, I've, I've read about those things, and, you know, but uh, no, I didn't actually. My husband's that. brother is buried in the punch bowl, and beside him are 20 unknowns. That right. Yeah. All, oh, they're yeah. all over the oh, punch yeah. bowl. Yeah. Yeah. 20 unknowns, 40 unknowns. How do they know that, who, who they were? Well, Mary, from the bomb shelter, we were ordered over to the uh, uh, Fort Island, uh, one of the hangars, to load ammunition into the belts. And they were sending up all sorts of aircraft you know little seaplanes were going up and in the hope of knocking down some aircraft but it, you know, people had to do something really and even if you were throwing potatoes at aircraft that was something but then we were then ordered to go back on board the ship and we went first of all to the tennessee we were trying to get the tennessee underway but of course our ship the west virginia had it locked in against the key and the, the Tennessee's um, main engines were turning over, and the, the attack was still going on, and probably this would be the second wave. And uh, so we would, we would shelter underneath one of the turrets, and then we would dash out and, and hack away at the, at the cables, trying to break them away from the keys. And then as the planes would come over, you would dash back underneath the turret again. And so finally the um, attack was over, and we then went to our, back to our own ship, which was then on fire. And we fought fires on her for all that day and all that night. And she was just glowing red, and, and I suppose, first of all, we thought she was going to blow up any moment, and then you forgot about it. And then you were breaking open pyrotechnic lockers, and everything. all hell would break loose when they would open up one of those. But in the middle of the night, again, we thought another attack. Mm -hmm. And that was a scary one, really, because it was dark, I suppose. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and what it was that uh, apparently a couple of aircrafts from one of the carriers mm -hmm. had got lost, mm -hmm. two fighters, I think. And they tried to land at the naval station at, um, at Port Island. And of course, every ship in a harbor <laughs> let loose on them. And I think they actually I, knocked one down, yeah. <laughs> but he survived all right. All right. Uh, that's, I think, the story. Mm -hmm. but, but still, I don't know personally. But the following morning, we were accepted just a small number of uh, maybe bosun's mates and fire control and that sort of thing were left on a ship, and we were ordered to the boxing arena in Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm where we stayed for some days and I I had a pair of dungaree trousers, a dungaree shirt, and Admiral PNL Bellinger's play jacket, mustn't forget that. Yeah. And I arrived uh, on the Tennessee with no shoes and one of the bosuns gave me a pair of his shoes. I wore a size about nine and a half then, they were about size seven. And we got a knife and cut the sides off so I could wear the thing. I still had those. Mm -hmm. And I had those until I was transferred on, see, Benjamin, Leo, Cherry, and I, again. Um, but John Wilson O'Neill wasn't there. Actually, he wasn't on board then because he'd, the previous day, had bought my <coughs> set of golf clubs and taken them ashore. Anyway, that's nothing. Uh, uh, on the uh, midnight, the 12th of December, Benny, Cherry, and I were transferred to the USS Tangier.
an aircraft tender mm -hmm. with 200 Marines, innumerable five-inch shells, mm -hmm. aviation, petrol, and goodness knows what. And we, we were the first task force to leave Pearl Harbor after the attack, organized anyway. And where did you go? And uh, we left Pearl Harbor on the morning of the 13th. There was a Tangier, the Netches, an oil tanker. I think there was two divisions of destroyers. I think that, that would be eight. And a division of cruisers, that would be four and the aircraft carrier Ranger. Oh, yeah. Hmm. You know, I've sort of read since that that was a kind of a, a political kind of a move, really, but I, I'm not sure I believe that because people make decisions which they think are right. So, mm -hmm. And they, what we were going to do was to relieve Colonel Vaught at Wake Island because mm -hmm. the Marines were being, they were under siege at Wake Island. Mm -hmm. And so I think the intention was to relieve the Marines at Wake Island, and they were going to beach the Tangier as near as possible to Wake Island, and then we would go ashore with the Marines and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And we crossed the international date line on the 22nd of December, 1941. And it then became 23rd of December, right, of course. And we got information the Japanese were waiting for us anyway. So they, they realized then I had the value of an aircraft carrier. And of course, we had um, Ranger, and they were not about to sacrifice uh, an aircraft carrier. So I believe for that reason, we were ordered back. Mm -hmm. And so we crossed the international dateline again on the 24th of December. It became the 23rd of December. And I was born on the 23rd of December, and I was 21 twice. <laughs> and I didn't even know it until I was sitting down to Christmas dinner, traditional Christmas dinner, at Midway Island on the Tangier, uh, when I suddenly realized that I had been 21 and twice. And we then went back to um, Pearl Harbor, and I was transferred. Actually, there was a message at, at, at Midway, transfer James Brown Peterson, quartermaster third class, and Benjamin Leo Cherry, quartermaster third class, to the staff of Admiral P.N.L. Bellinger on return to Pearl Harbor. Oh, and that's the one whose jacket you had? Yeah, okay. that's yeah. right. He wasn't in, uh, no. you know, he was a vice admiral. Yeah. yeah. But that, did you enjoy that assignment? I did, yeah. 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 You know, until I went back to uh, America. Well, there's more to it than that. We were actually flown out to, uh, no, the, uh, these are just little aside, but um, we were flown out to Midway, for the Battle of Midway, because we were, yeah, we were navigating the Petty Officer and we had prepared some charts, Turning which we... Turning point in the war wasn't yeah. the Battle of Coral Sea. Were you there? No. no. Oh, no. But Midway no. was important. Midway was, well, I think that was probably they broke turning the point. Yet. But all these things were, you know, now these are things that um, we didn't really know much about, and we we sort of think we know. But uh, I think the people who were in the war would be able to evaluate what the turning point of the war was. Some people think Coral Sea, which it was important, because but they one kept tells, the cold. Oh, sure, uh -huh. yes, that's so. But and they, they had everything that they could possibly get sure. there for them. Yeah. But uh, you know, in life, uh -huh. really, every what, battle is your battle, and yeah. 
important. Yeah. But then one thing is a consequence of the other, isn't it, uh -huh. really? Uh -huh. And so I suppose you could say that uh, one thing built on the other, and you, you know, you might say that Midway was a turning point. Mm -hmm. Then you might also have to say that uh, Coral Sea was too. Then you might also have to mm -hmm. say something else was. Mm -hmm. And so you go on. Anyway, Mary, it was a pleasure to give you the story. Oh, right? no. And um, truly, this is the first time I've Sissy, really ever consciously given. That you're giving. And I'm anxious to play this when I'm with the other people, too, because they'll get a lot out of that. They'll say, what well, I, you know, I was on the Tennessee. We have men that were on the Tennessee, one that was blown out of the Arizona. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, that's just terrific. Well... My pleasure. <laughs> okay, thank you. Right. This is the Weekend Variety Ones on Radio Live. I'm not stretching it to say another thank you to Scott Kelly, who gave me access to that rare and very, very special, previously very private recording of his grandfather regaling what the hell it was like to be at Pearl Harbor, December the 7th, 1941. So hats off to you and your family. Thanks so much for that. It was just so special. And I hope you, in inverted commas, enjoyed it. Bizarre lyrics after 11 o'clock with Grant Smithies. Hear songs about the virtues of copper compared with other metals. Paleontology, how it works, map making and yellow things, as well as Richard Nixon. Bizarre lyrics, uh, it's a hell of a lot of fun. Oh, and just while we're doing it, I suppose, a bit of a salute to... Pete Shelley, who died at the age of 63. Pete Shelley of the Buzzcocks just died this week. Uh, very sad to hear. Um, if it wasn't for the Buzzcocks, there wouldn't be the Smiths. I can prove it. Morrissey would have been there listening to the Buzzcocks and basically just slowed them down, and that's the Smiths. Here's a Buzzcocks song, Slowed Down. It's the Smiths. <laughs> Just imagine your mozza on stage. News time.